Welcome back to Three Decades of Tragedy, History of the Thirty Years' War. Last week, we covered the French and Spanish as their conflicts were happening at the same time, but the wars remained separate from the Thirty Years' War, but there was a clear blurring that was starting to happen, or at least sides were beginning to form. Or, you can tell who's going to who, to make it more simple. And with that, we get back to the war as we get started today. While everything was happening with the French from last week, well, a lot of them was happening with the French, Dutch, and Spanish, the Swedes were losing grip on northwestern Germany. Many of the local allies refused to join the Helbron League, which, if you remember, was a group of Protestants that were forming together that were the old allies, but they were trying to come together in a new status quo with the death of Gustavus. And Oxenstierna had tried to get them back by extending territorial concessions in order to get them back under control and get them as an ally again. But this backfired as it led those allies to more focus on their own conquests, which fragmented them and led them to focus less on the war as a whole and more on their little corner of the war. Some of them pushed into neighboring territories that they had claims on or wanted, while others, like Duke Friedrich Ulrich, refused to cooperate, hoping that he'd get Wolfenbuttel back from the emperor. And in the area, the Swedish did not have enough troops to really enforce their control, as we talked about before. So while these allies were still nominally aligned with them, it was clear Swedish control was breaking down, or at least reducing at this point, which we covered in episodes before, which was kind of an obvious sign. With the Swedish forces dispersed and spread out, the League was able to rebuild an army under Gronsfeld, which was made up of units left by Pappenheim when he marched on Lutzen. He was then reinforced by 4,000 Walloons, bringing his number to 10,800 infantry, 3,900 cavalry, and 15 guns by June 1633, and earlier he had been able to repulse a Swedish attack on the Rhine from Mainz. Well, not him at Mainz, but the attack came from Mainz. Also, for reference, Walloons are one of the other ethnic groups that make up Belgium nowadays, which is a combination of Flanders and Walloons and other groups. So with the men that he gathered, he marched east to relieve Hamlin, which was under attack by Duke George. The Protestant prince had received reinforcements and a surprising show of solidarity, giving him around 7,000 infantry, 6,000 cavalry, and 37 guns. So number-wise, the two factions were about even in this area, with the Swedish allies having an advantage in guns and cavalry, and the Imperials had an advantage in infantry. The battle, which would be known by the area it was fought at, was to be fought at Heisek Oldendorf, which is around 20 kilometers to the northwest of Hamelin. The Allies deployed during the night of July 7th on a plateau north of the town facing northwest, with the left flank under command of Kaifausen. If I got that wrong, I probably did, but yeah. Resting at Oldendorf, and the right was under Melander in front of the village of Barksen, where they were nearby the Wesser Hills. George took command of the infantry and artillery in the center, his line protected by a marshy terrain, which allowed him to negate the numbers advantage of the Imperials at the cost of making him be able to effectively advance and attack them. With the Imperials, they deployed 500 yards away, the left flank screened by two streams and woods. While he, as in the Imperial commander, had more infantry, Many of them were new recruits, and his cavalry was outnumbered, so he actually proposed to stay put and keep the enemy pinned while he sent troops to relieve Hamlin, as most of those troops had been pulled off, leaving only a couple hundred musketeers to keep up the siege. His officers, however, objected, saying it was cowardice, and they could beat their enemy in one blow. I don't necessarily agree with that, but I can see how people would want glory in battle, and a solid victory would reduce the power of the Saxons and their allies. So both sides do have a point, although I would have probably gone with the commander on this one. 
Granted, neither side really had an advantage at this point, so it was a risk for both of them in this battle. The battle started at 7pm the next day with the standard artillery barrage, with musket troops fighting on the woods and stream side for the woods. The Protestants supported the attack with cavalry, led by Melander, who quickly drove back the Imperials, who didn't leave their units to assist due to fear of disorder in the woods, which, realistic, but, as I'll show here, was not the best decision, which then led to the Imperials falling back, exposing the center to fire from the flank. On the right, the Protestants charged with 900 cavalry, which was quickly met by the overconfident Imperials, but they were quickly repulsed, and more Swedish and German troops deployed, driving back Imperial attacks multiple times, especially now that they had more numbers and more people to rely on. The Imperial right flank, which was the one I just talked about, eventually collapsed and was flanked, so those men fled or died, and soon after, the Imperial left also collapsed, leaving the infantry in the center alone. The battle raged until 2pm, the Imperials were fighting bravely, but they were surrounded and cut down, with only around 4,200 escaping, mainly cavalry. The Imperials lost around 6,000 men dead, while only 300 Swedes or their allies died. This was a clear-cut victory, and the Swedish doctrine, combined with the aggressive nature of leading officers, heavily contributed to it in my books. It wasn't helped that the Imperials were not willing to commit. It wasn't helped by the Imperials not willing to commit, which made this overwhelming victory more possible. If the Imperials had been willing to commit, at the very least they could have made the victory more costly for the Swedes and their allies, but in the end it didn't happen, leading to a very clear-cut victory. In the aftermath of the battle, Hamlin surrendered by July 18th and then Osnabrück by October. Osnabrück actually remained a Swedish base until 1643, as Oxenstierna refused to give it to George. He also took five regiments from Kaifausen to reinforce Franconia, reducing their strength of the army in the region, hurting plans for capturing more lands west of the Wester. Kaifausen was also dispirited by this, which caused him to resign by February 1634, leaving the Swedish units in this area leaderless. And while this was a victory, and the Swedes were a big part of it, this wasn't the only thing going on in the Protestant war effort. With the Swedes at their weakest state overall in the war, especially after the early war and their successes in that part, the plans for the Hessians to conquer lands in Westphalia to create a land bridge of the Dutch Republic was unsettled. The Swedes and the German allies wanted the support of the Dutch, so efforts were redoubled by the Hessians to open that up, hoping the Dutch would be more reliable than the Swedes as an ally. Uh, the Hessians, if you guys don't know contextually culturally, were a German cultural group, but also, any of you American fans, they were the guys that were guarding Trenton when George Washington crossed the river. At that time, they were known for fiercer mercenaries, but not as much at this time. But back on topic, Oxenstierna also supported the plan to try to open up a quarter to the Dutch, hoping the Hessians would be able to get the Dutch into the Hellbronn League, but unable to offer much support at this point. By August 1633, the quarter had been opened and Melander joined the army of Frederick Henry with, with around 1,000 Hessians and 2,600 Swedes. However, Frederick Henry thought the Hessians came to him because they ate everything in Westphalia after they showed up late, and by October, he had ejected the Swedish and Hessian troops back over the Rhine, as they weren't much help and he felt they were probably a drag on their army, and, and as I'm about to say, they had some hang-ups. The Hessians were also viewed by the Dutch as rivals for events like capturing Lipstadt and taking outposts along the river the Lip, L-I-P-P-E, that the Dutch had returned to Brandenburg, which was upsetting their diplomatic relations, but kind of hard to control in a war like this. And they also were bordering each other on the Munster River, which would lead to tensions at times. So you can see why the Dutch would have issues. Melander then tried to negotiate with the Dutch over the next couple of years, although the closest they came to was getting subsidies and 3,500 auxiliaries in 1634. This relied on getting the Hessians as a buffer between the wars, which would be the Dutch eastern border, effectively, which in turn relied on the Hessians capturing Munster City, which they found themselves unable to, and the Gulafs refused to help as they were besieging Hildsheim and Minden, which they took by June and November 1634, respectively. The 
Hessians then began campaigning in the region of Westphalia between 1633 and 1634, which became the balance of the power in the region for over a decade. The Swedes were restricted to Osnabrück till 1645, when they conquered Bremen and Verden. The Gulefs held Minden and Hoya in northeast Westphalia, along with Hildsheim and Lower Saxony south of the Elbe. The Hessian conquest of the region cut the Imperial and Catholic League forces, isolating the forces in Cologne, the attached Duchy in Westphalia, and Panderborn. The Catholics also lost Lower Saxony, but Wolfenbüttel remained a stronghold of them, as well as a staging ground which the main army could use if they wanted to attack. So overall, the campaigning went well, and this definitely gave the Allies a strong hold over northwest Germany, although there were still people in there that weren't on either side of the war. This failure to evict the Hessians, or at least deal with them, forced Westphalia to choose a side. Well, at least in terms of the Spanish and Dutch. Ferdinand of Cologne had to reject terms from Isabella, as they didn't want to sever ties from the Dutch, as they were the ones trading them supplies and stuff like that. The Catholic territories of Westphalia began to ally with the Calvinists to maintain neutrality south of the Lip, and others began to declare their neutrality, seeing themselves on the front of two wars, and they did not want to get caught between it. Getting caught between two wars would be nasty. This whole process at least for the Imperials, was hurt by the death of Isabella on December 1st, 1633. Olivares, who was the Spanish Prime Minister, effectively, had distrusted her policies, his interim governor, dissolving the estates that she had gathered, and arrested the representatives, which Richelieu began to pay the Dutch more money, at least a million more talers, to stop the alliance and the talk of negotiations, which I think at that point is logical. With this whole peace process not happening, the Westphalians seeing the peace break down, so the only option now was to try to eject the Hessians from their territory, and the Hessians saw they needed to hold on to the land to sustain their army. Both sides knew they lacked the men and money to truly fight in an open war, so they looked for easy targets, which they both knew was Wolfgang Wilhelm's territory, which was around 52 towns and castles. The Duke saw this and raised an army of around 7,000 men, although some of that was on paper. He hoped this would act as a deterrent, but both sides were tempted by this, and the Imperials and the Protestants began to prod and poke into there. The Imperials raided Berg, where the Hessians seized Elberfields, Elberfelds, forcing the garrison to disarm and undress while giving the Hessians part of their flag as humiliation. They also began conscripting men into the army, and the Imperials doing the same thing. The Emperor actually backed the estates of the area, refusing to pay the soldiers of the Duke, hoping the money would be sent to him instead, which was successful, and the Duke did maintain his neutrality, despite his soldiers deserting him in droves. I feel bad for him, actually really bad for him, as he was in a really bad position, with both sides taking advantage of him, his men leaving in droves, his money probably wasn't great at that time, and cops in two potential wars, so he couldn't really do much, but man, I don't want to be in his position like last week, showed while these wars were separate, they were brushing against each other and it was getting uncomfortably close at times. They weren't linked yet, but you could tell there was sides being formed. There was enough different goals that none of them lined up so there was no need to fully form an alliance on the Dutch and the French, the Dutch and the Swedes, etc. And I would say that some of their leaders would probably see that there was a big mess here as the war was costing the Swedes and the Imperials a lot of money. And I'm guessing the Spanish and the Dutch were not under a good condition either, along with the whole cost of men. I mean, France and Spain were clearly picking their sides, even if they weren't obviously backing them. But like last time, they kept their distance. But next time, we will go into more negotiations that were happening behind the scenes during this war and during this time period, as it might have a big impact on the war. I want to thank you all for listening in and hope you're enjoying it. The social media links will be in the description box or in the links themselves. You can email me at 3decot at gmail.com. Reminder that of Patreon, I want to thank all those who support me. Interview and spread the word, and I'll see you guys next time.